This Sunday is a little bit different to a normal Sunday. Um, a normal Sunday, we, we might be in a teaching series where we'd open up a, a passage from Scripture and unpack that passage. But what we're doing today is going to be sharing a story in the hope that um, the story will ignite faith. Faith that God can do the same in your life, in the, the lives of your friends and family. So um, I'm going to be interviewing Steve. Steve, why don't you come and join me? This is Steve. Um, come on. Woo! who is a vicar in the Church of England in dress-down mode. Um, it's, it's the London Marathon today. And Steve told me before we came upstairs that he's been involved in four London Marathons. Isn't that incredible? Um, not as a runner, as a police officer. Um, so there we go. S -s Slight twist. Um, so Steve leads a church called Church Crawley, which is in Crawley. Um, and but true. And I'm going to be just interviewing you, asking some questions about your story, how you ended up, where you are now, and what God's been doing in your life. Um, but perhaps we'll go right back to the beginning um, by talking about upbringing and then career. Because one of the things when we chatted earlier in the week, you kind of summarised your story, or at least the first half of your story, um, with the words that you were leaning your ladder and climbing that ladder, but it was leaning against the wrong wall. Yeah, um, right. And I think many of us can relate to that when you know, we have this mindset, particularly in a city like London that moves at significant pace, that I, I want to climb ladders, I want to progress, but we want to make sure that the ladder's leaning against the right wall. So I'm going to ask you about career, but let's start with upbringing. Just tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Yeah, I was born on Christmas Day. Come on. Ah, sad day for a vicar, always got to work. <laughs> and uh, so I was born in South London, uh, in Thornheath, it's Croydon, North Croydon. And so, yeah, it's Great, good. <laughs> At least lot. one other from... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a gentle whoop, but there yeah, was yeah. a whoop. I'm north of the river, so I'm like, oh, this is a bit, oh. <laughs> so, um, yeah, born on Christmas Day, my uh, a twin. Okay. So my twin sister was um, uh, spina bifida. So okay. right from birth, she, was, she wasn't able to walk. And so we were baptised, christened on our birthday. And so I felt God was in, in the room right from the word go. Wow. And then just grew up and my dad was a police officer. So he came from Somerset, moved up, and was a police, uh, PC uh, all his career. So I'll never be a disappointment to him. <laughs> um, and then we sort of grew up, grew up in, on an estate in um, London. So it was, it was the only police house on the estate, but really loved growing up in uh, sort of Thornton Heath and uh, where we're from. And then when I was about eight or nine, my dad was uh, diagnosed with spinal cancer and spent four years in hospital. Uh, during that time, uh, three years not walking. Wow. And so my mum, I've got an older brother and sister, and my mum was basically between a hospital for Sue. So if, with uh, uh, spina bifida, they get water on the brain. So Sue had an operation every year for a while wow. uh, to take the water off the brain. So mum would be visiting Sue or visiting dad. And uh, so we really got on with life as yeah. a three at uh, home. You know, I still remember dad going in for a serious operation when we were like 11. The kids are all in the, in the room. My dad's colleagues came in and said, oh, Mick, which is his name, he said, we've only bought you a single and a magazine because we don't think you'll have time to read it, which is policeman's humour. <laughs> but what very good when you've got the kids in the room. And it's yeah. like, oh, oh, oh. And so um, they were coping with their sort of grief as well in the time. But what happened was we just got on with life. So an example of that was we learned to cook a roast dinner when I was 11. Wow. My mum came in on my first roast dinner and she said, oh, she looked at the, everything was looking good. And I said, the only thing, mum, is the cabbage isn't cooking. And she looked into the saucepan and went, 
you've got to cut the cabbage up. <laughs> so I had a whole cabbage and it was boiling. It just wasn't doing. And so they, they were the sort of things we went on. But the upbringing really meant that we, as a family, never really spoke about these sort of things. You just got on. So if, if you had a fight at school or something happened, I put it in a box yeah. and just said, right, I'm, I'm strong. I need to be strong. Burstons are strong. We're going to carry on. Yeah. And so that was just at school. So I uh, went to university, uh, studied history. Uh, at St. Anton, uh, mainly because I was playing cricket a lot, and there's not a lot of lectures in history. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of reading. And then after university, I um, played cricket and went to Australia, went to Scarborough, played that for a year, came back, or 18 months, came back and found out I was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> and they wouldn't keep the contract going. And in 1992, I joined the Metropolitan Police, which tells you who I was trying to please, because yeah. my dad was a police officer. Yeah. And actually, I joined in 92. He was either a history teacher or a police officer, and I looked at the wage structure. I had a lot of debt as a cricketer, and then went, ah, I think I joined the police because you earn a bit more money there. <laughs> that is my life choice. And so let's, let's talk about your career in the police, because you obviously had significant drive, um, and you'd found your coping mechanism, which is like, stuff it down, crack on, be strong, don't show weakness, which for a window served you well. Pretty disastrous long-term, we'll come to that. Um, but talk about that ascent then um, in the police force and just some of your career as a police officer. Yeah, so joined, went to Brixton as a uniform PC. And so 92, 93, so lived through Stephen Lawrence and the McPherson inquiry and still massive. One of the reflections just before we move on is when... Uh, uh, we were reflecting on race as a staff team. It was just amazing to me that half the people hadn't heard of Stephen Lawrence, of our young staff team. And it's like going back on. But we, yeah, policed in, uh, policed in London. Similar sort of st uh, scenario is I was, things were happening that I was sticking in boxes. So before, so I went to a house fire when I was a young PC. My wife, who's now leading, I've left leading Church Crawley, stitched up this weekend. Um, <laughs> she was a police officer as well. And we were on duty one day uh, and there was a house fire. We, uh, I went to it, I was the first there and kicked in the door, ran up the stairs and rescued a baby, gave mouth to mouth uh, of the baby downstairs. It may have been breathing by the time I came down. Yeah. I just I was in panic mode. Couldn't get back up the stairs after I dealt with the baby and other people had come. And unbeknown to me, there's two children who died in the fire. So that I didn't realise until much later in life how much that affected me. Yeah. And, and the way I dealt with it was I went down the pub, yeah. had a pint with my mate, yeah. and that was it. And yeah. that's, uh, so that was, there was other stuff that, you know, uh, never short of a story, Pete's here from our church. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I've only had one life. Um, but so I then became a detective uh, very soon after. I was on the robbery squad and the burglary squad at Brixton, then moved on to the flying squad, which yeah. is the Sweeney uh, flying squad, Sweeney Todd. Okay. Rhyming slang. Nice, thanks for the... Thank you, that's all right. That's all. People go, what's and, and what's the, what, what happens in the flying squad? Uh, not a lot, really. No, quite a lot. <laughs> we, um, we're, I was in charge of an armed surveillance team as a young DS, uh, and we follow armed robbers. Okay. Basically. So armed robbery, so gold, uh, the Millennium Dome, which was they had the diamond job. Yeah. Some people have heard of that. That was the sort of thing. So it was always after armed robbers. Wow. And so we would follow. So I led, so by this stage... I'd been in about seven or eight years. I was the youngest DS on the Tower Bridge flying squad, which meant that there was lots of big characters. Yeah. And I'm not a big character, 
but I pretended to be a big character. So literally every day I'd turn up and literally lift myself in the car and go, right, come on, Bursty, you've got to be really on it because the police is like a rugby club every day of the week and it basically dog eat dogs with banter. Yeah. I was like, come on, I can deal with this. And I had big, big figures that were there. They'd been there like 20, 30 years and they were looking like to always like pick yeah. at holes. And I was like, oh, I can do this. And I thought I could. Yeah. I really genuinely did. And so I was on the flying squad for uh, about three or four years before I became a detective inspector and then led the South London Crime Squad South, which okay. was a group of 120 detectives working under Operation Trident, dealing with the dismantling. So a murder would happen, the murder teams within a gang, murder teams would come in and investigate it, but my team's jobs with armed surveillance teams, eight armed surveillance teams, would be to try to dismantle any escalation proactively by arresting people before someone else got killed. Okay. So we did that, but in the same time, uh, so uh, bring up a family. Uh, Liz uh, and me got married. We started dating on October the 25th, 96, and got married on October the 25th, 97. I wasn't even a Christian. I don't know what was wrong. I dated a few <laughs> girls and I thought, oh, she's all right. <laughs> She'd be sitting here and go, oh, my word, what was I thinking? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, three, we got three girls. Uh, amazing girls, uh, Grace, Alice and Lily. One's a secondary school teacher, one's a paediatric nurse and one's going to be hopefully an architect. So, wow. But all that was going on at the same time. But I then became, I got a phone call. I did a test to go into another unit and I got a phone call from a department called SED10, uh, the Met, which is, used to be on the uh, one of the floors at New Scotland Yard, but it's on a much lower floor now. <laughs> it's not quite so impressive building, they've knocked it down. Um, and I became an undercover police officer. Uh, and what did that look like? And obviously a lot of time away from family, but you've got a growing family, yeah. your career's thriving, going undercover. What, what did that yeah. look like? So, you know, you're a detective, so you're not in uniform, and so technically surveillance teams is undercover in one way, but undercover police work means that we disappear for like two or three months at a time, and I go and live a different life in a different part of the country or a different part of the world. And wow. so I did that for seven years, and I hated every minute of it. Wow. And, I mean, you've, you've mentioned some of, of your trauma um, and, and the mechanism that almost you developed from a young age, which is, you can do this, Bursty. I'm borrowing your nickname. Um, you can do this. What, what did that moment of going undercover do then, as you were like, obviously, probably in very stressful situations? Yeah, I literally take a phone call and every part of my being would want to say no. Yeah. And every part of it, because I wanted to please people. Yeah. and quite like the kudos attached to it, would say yes. And so I'd be deployed and it's very lonely. Uh, so yeah, everyone thinks it's very glamorous, but you're sitting in a lone flat quite a lot in a different life yeah. with a different scenario. And so my expertise was in uh, buying and selling diamonds because uh, I went to Antwerp and did a course and also uh, on chemistry. I'm, one of the skills I've got, which I'm losing as I get older, is <laughs> having a photographic memory so I can quickly learn things very quickly. Wow. So I'd be deployed. So we'd buy, you'd go and buy a, you know, uh, different parts, like a gun or, or be involved in buying kilos of cocaine from different parts, but mainly the valuation of diamonds. So I always say to my team, who are newly engaged... Yeah, let me have I'm a look. Steve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See if you've really been given the ring. You say, <laughs> and find the cheapskates that are in. So, oh, yeah, I spent thousands. That's two hundred and fifty yeah. quid. <laughs> Please don't chat to my wife after. Um, now, again, I know you well enough to know that you're very humble. But just to talk about this, 
you were doing really well. Obviously, you know, you're being promoted, you're being given more, you're winning awards, right? So in terms of, as people would look at your career, they'd be like, Steve is nailing this, right? Just give us a bit of a flavour of, of some of that. Yeah, it, yeah, for everyone on the outside, the London Crime Squad was highly successful yeah. uh, in its thing. It was bought out of uh, John Greaves, a unit that was uh, bought alongside to reinvestigate the Stephen Lawrence inquiry and, a, and arrest the suspects. It was also a merger of new units in the corruption that was in existence of the regional crime squad, so it was a new unit. Yeah. One thing that uh, is really important to me is integrity. Mm. And so they were things that brought lots of strain in the police. Uh, but it then meant we were high profile, and so it's so a different operations. I won different things that I'd never, ever picked up and uh, because... I really found, actually, I thought I was a complete fraud. Mm. So everyone had this idea that I was absolutely, deep, really successful. But behind it, I thought, I have no idea what I'm doing 95% of the time. And it's only by the, you know, I say grace of God now, but only by pure luck that I get away with it. So if you pull back my curtain, I think everyone would say I was a fraud. And I think, so that, what that meant was I was completely, really driven. Yeah. which meant that every day we'd have a big job off. So we'd, uh, you know, we did, you know, I remember going to a search one with Boris Johnson when he was the mayor of London. That, you know, none of you will do this, but he's the most least discreet person <laughs> going to an address at four o'clock in the morning you would meet. Yeah. He'd go, officers, where are we going? He'd go, shh, we're just about to kick in a door. And he was saying away. But um, <laughs> never do it. Um, but there's, we'd, you know, we'd, we'd do 36 search warrants in, in, a, in a day and things like that. And so it, we were at the cutting edge of everything. But um, I literally would then, the next day, we had that result, job off. Yeah. The next day, I would be trying to prove myself all over again. So I'd be going, right, I've got to go again. Because actually, if people really have a look at me, they see that I'm a fraud and I don't really want, no, I'm all blah. Yeah. So high levels of stress, away from family a lot, driven, um, so things are getting more intense, but in one sense, your career is just growing, growing. Um, and you were heavily involved in the 7-7 bombings. Just talk us through that, because that probably is quite a critical moment in some of what's about to happen yeah. in your life. So 60 to 90 hour weeks weren't unusual. So that was the norm. Liz's three kids. And so dual life as well. That's what we say. I'm this amazing father when I come home. But actually, yeah, it's like a, you're drinking down the pub when you're at work, and so those are sort of things that come out. And I was in charge, so I like a course. Everyone likes a course. <laughs> I hate a course. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I do, I do, okay. Uh, what, apart from the alpha course? Okay. <laughs> well done, Steve. Well done, Steve. <laughs> Staying on track. <laughs> Love the alpha course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, they'll have a debrief on Monday for you. But, um, so um, I did a body recovery course, which was, you know, when something happens abroad, they send detectives across to recover the Met detectives to make sure that British citizens' bodies are recovered with dignity. And so the Soon Army, I was in charge of the morgue for the Soon Army wow. in 2003. And then in 2005, when the London bombings came, went off, it was just a strange day for those who remember 7-7. Uh, it felt like we'd gone to war in a kind of bizarre way. We hadn't got a clue who it was. Yeah. We had 200 suspects so on the day of the bombings. I was sent straight up to Kilburn just with a picture and said, follow that person. And I was like, why? Who? Uh, yeah. And they just follow him. If they go towards a tube, intercept it with your armed surveillance team. And like, yeah. really? 
And that was that was the first day. The second day, I was called back into New Scotland Yard, and I was put in charge of the Edgware Road crime scene. Wow. Uh, and so for a number of days with a small little team that I keep really uh, still keep in contact with. Very few from the police I do nowadays because my life's yeah. moved on. But we keep in contact there. And our job was to recover the bodies. And so we went into there. And some of the some of the bodies of those who died were were in live victims in hospitals across London. So it's yeah. just working all that out. And um, I have a high sense of complete finish finisher. Yeah. And I found it really hard because... It, you didn't finish, and we that London had to move on, and that really deeply affected me. Yeah. And so that so the London bombings were. And and the complete finish that, the sense that some bodies weren't recoverable. Yeah, there was one bit, part of what yeah, that we didn't get entirely out. What I'd say, looking back now, we went down in that uh, tunnel on the first day, and we felt a presence down there that uh, felt was weeping. Yeah. I would now say, as a vicar, that was God. Wow. And then when we came out, we of that first, we decided that till we were going to, and we, none of us were Christian, there was no Christians in my team. Yeah. There. It was like, we're going to love the bombers, their victims. Yeah. And so we're going to now change the, the language. And they, we, the only way we could do it with integrity was to call them, yeah. to say they were victims. Yeah. And so how, how's that affecting you? Because you, you have your mechanism, push it down, push it down, but stuff like that's really hard to push down. So what, what did it start doing to you? So I started dumbing down things by, you know, when jobs had off, I'd drink and we, you know, like, because uh, intake would go up or I'd work harder. There was two responses, either be out drinking yeah. with the team or working long hours and always going in yeah. and thinking, you know, I had this delusion that, uh, that I made a massive difference and if I wasn't in, yeah. then the thing would all fall apart. Yeah. And so language of falling apart, things did begin to fall apart. So just talk us through... You know, what happened next? So me and Lizzie, uh, Lizzie's a, well, the poshest police officer you'll ever meet in the world. <laughs> she is. Well, we used to call her Mary Poppins because she's like, God bless you, Mary Poppins. <laughs> but she's really, you know, so... But her family were missionaries in Kenya. She had a faith but moved away from it when we got together and come to faith again. Uh, but we'd, uh, our marriage was... We were moving apart, uh, really. And I was preparing to, like, separate, really, because it was that, that bad... Um, not because particularly home life was bad, but we were just living different lives. Yeah. And we moved to Ashington, which is a village down where, where Wildfires is based, basically, within that place. So we moved down to there because Lizzie's mum and dad had helped plant a church there 10 years ago before we moved there. And uh, we had a house, we bought a house directly opposite them. So if I brutally, honestly, and I can be now, because we've done this, I was looking to like, leave Liz and then, um, because I couldn't cope with being a dad, I yeah. did too much, and I just uh, everything was unraveling, and so we we moved in there. Um, other you know, other sort of behaviour is I just couldn't cope with all the different. It was just I was on a treadmill and running to disaster. And then in February two thousand and seven, I got a phone call from my brother, uh, Darren, and he said, "Oh, Sue's gone, gone into hospital." I was working in Hackney. This is your sister, Sue. Yeah, twin sister. So I was in Hackney in Wick Road and we were leading an armed surveillance job and I said, look, Darren, I can't get home. You know, I'll go and see her the weekend because it's quite normal. Unbeknown to me, me that Liz, uh, Sue had got septicemia and she died within uh, 12 hours. Wow. And so I came home uh, and then sort of visited family and then I went to the funeral but I didn't go to the wake and I went straight back to work. Wow. And then two weeks later in Hack Hackney, we just moved house 
uh, I got, uh, I got, I felt I played a lot of rugby and I dislocated my shoulder in the past. And I thought I'd dislocate my shoulder, so I stupidly drove across London to our GP that was in South London. Still, walked in and they told me I was having a heart attack at the age of 36. Wow! Uh, at which point I had two further heart attacks. Wow! Got sent up to St George's Tooting, uh, and uh, praise God to the doctors and nurses. My heart had gone into spasm and couldn't come out of spasm. And they, they were amazing. Lizzie came in and we separated wow. in the hospital because she just said, I cannot cope with this. And rightly so. You know, Liz, when we tell this story and we do it together sometimes, she goes, I sound awful. <laughs> <laughs> but really, genuinely, she has had the heart of gold and the patience of a saint. Wow. And she just thought, I've got to do something. Yeah. Um, at which point we separated. Humiliatingly, I went back to live with my parents which is for, uh, uh, at this point, and it, Detective Inspector was like, really humiliating. Yeah. I'd signed off work for six months. The police was really good at like cheering me on and never, ever helping, but as soon as something happens, they, they were quite good. Yeah. So we had the commander of crime come down, explain to my dad a few of the deployments that I don't really talk about, but yeah. leave a larger scar on me yeah. uh, because of things that happened. And uh, just spoke it through. My dad got really angry because he was a policeman saying, well, how could you do this to him? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, really hit rock bottom on antidepressants at this point, barely sleeping. I'd failed to be a dad. I failed to be a good policeman. The only thing I thought I was good at, I couldn't yeah. do. Uh, and a husband and everything was unravelling. And I felt humiliated and shame. So this is in the space of like weeks, a couple of months. You lose your twin sister. Yeah. You lose your job. You're you know, wife yep. leaves you, you've had a heart attack. Yeah. Um, Sounds then, good, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so this is, this is rock bottom. But God has a way of encountering people at rock bottom. So how, how did God come and find you? Yeah, um, so Lizzie had started going to Ashton's church, met the vicar there, uh, Chris McClay, and, said, and asked him to come and visit me. So he came and visited me, which is, yeah, I can't believe he did. He knocked on the door and I thought, what on earth do I want to speak to this bloke with a knock on the door? <laughs> I thought, you're the last person I want to talk to. So he came in and he had Tim Kate like a true Anglican come vicar. On, come That's on. great. Yeah, God speaks in a mysterious ways over lemon drizzle cake. Um, and I just thought, I'm going to tell you my story. If you get yeah. in for a penny, in for a pound, and a lot more graphic detail than I spoke about this morning. And he just went, oh, Oh, quite a lot through it. And you could see him like a trapped rabbit going, I have nowhere to go like this. <laughs> and it's about, it about two and a half hours later and he just said to me, look, Steve, I've got two things to say to you. He said, you are deeply loved by God and you are his son. Wow. And he said, read the Psalms. And I thought, you're, I was expecting a little bit more than that. <laughs> <laughs> and he left. And then uh, about two hours later, Lizzie came and knocked on the door. And I, I get emotional over time. I tell you, uh, she knocked on the door and she said, at the door and said, I still love the man I married wow. and I'm going to fight for this and God's going to fight for you. Wow, amazing. And so we cried a lot and I'd never cried before. So I, Burstons don't cry. Mm. I cry a lot now. As <laughs> he would say, we're a crying church, we cry a lot. And, um, and so Lizzie left. Three days later, I got to feel uh, the pain was just so much. Mm. And, I, and I, I just wanted to stop thinking, mm. the overthinking and, and just the heaviness. And so I, I, I went through the motions of looking at how I could kill myself. Mm. And uh, uh, I was looking at hanging myself. And I was just like, I, just want, I didn't want the drama of it. I just wanted the thoughts to stop. 
Yeah. Uh, and so I went downstairs. My mum and dad went out, not knowing what sort of state I was in. And my my um, mum had bought the only Bible they had down since the vicar had come around. It's my sister's, my twin wow. sister. It's a Shaftesbury Society Bible. And I literally opened the Bible to Psalm 121. Wow. And it says, lift up your eyes to the hills. Where does your help come from? And suddenly I found a God that was with me. Wow. And I read the Psalms. I could shout. I was angry. I was grieving. And I was real. And suddenly I felt a God that I could be real with. And to be honest with you, being, being a policeman for like uh, oh, was it, uh, 16, 17 years by then, I was quite cynical. Yeah. But my goodness, it broke me down. And I came to faith in the next few days and read the Gospels and just met someone that understood me, understood the pain, and un- like, liked me for who I was, mm. not what everyone else could get from me or I thought they needed me to be. Yeah. So, and how did that encounter then? Like, finding a God that you could be angry at, reading the Psalms with probably these two things the vicar left you with. Yeah. You know, he loves you, you're his son. Like, what began to happen in your soul as you started encountering God? I actually realised that he liked me for who I was, not who I, he thought, I thought I needed to be for the world. And so that started to, to sort of heal something in me that he knew my name. Yeah. And so uh, I could have, like now we have things in front of our names uh, as vicars, and I had one, something, I've gone from one institution to the other, <laughs> which is something to work on as well. On outfits. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, and stuff after my name, and I realised he just liked Steve. Yeah. didn't care about even my family name to an extent. He just loved Steve. And so that happened and we had an encounter with the... I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, which was just transformative. So going through a lot of th- uh, therapy, always go therapy, love it. You talk about yourself a bit like this. Um, <laughs> this is group therapy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're doing a great job. Yeah. Thanks so much for being a part of this. Um, so psychotherapist really helped us. As a marriage, uh, she sort of, you know, so we restored... We, we all did it and we restored our marriage slowly wow. but surely. And Lizzie was saying there's things that she had to sort out, which is really gracious because it was mainly on my side. Yeah. Um, and we came together and that, that was just a great testimony to our kids as well who lived through it. And then um, one day I was looking after the kids. We're still separated. We, God is gracious with stories, isn't he? It's only when we had to retell our story recently because I stopped doing this for a while because uh, I thought... I'm called to Crawley, so I'm not going to go anywhere else. And I did, we did that for five years. And then, um, uh, yeah, it's really gracious because we thought we were separated for like a month and a half, but we were mm. separated for seven months because he just, mm. he's just gracious, so he doesn't know that. So we were separated. I was looking after kids, and one day, you know, the story I told about the kids uh, dying in the fire, I, I suddenly, in a, I can only describe it as a daymare, and I suddenly saw these kids in fire and started crying whilst being awake and thought, oh, no, I'm having a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Um, and so I rang up the vicar and, true to form, goes to answer machine, never answered yeah. back. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say brought over a lemon drizzle. No, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd advanced on to marble cake by then. <laughs> um, but he's... Uh, so that, and then so we went to see the psychotherapist and things happened there. But what basically, cut a long story short, is uh, we went to church on Sunday... Uh, Patrick Pierce and Mars is the, the chap who's walking through with me the whole time. Uh, prayed for me with the, the um, uh, Chris, and they basically said, "You know, I think God's saying to us that you feel unworthy because mm. they know my story. They're going, you can't possibly still, you know, feel unworthy, Steve, with all you've done and whatever." And I said, and I just cried because wow. that is really at my core, and that's why I still deal with God is unworthiness. Yeah, 
and uh, felt the Holy Spirit come and fill me and suddenly felt seen, heard and loved for the first time. Wow. And that's still the church that we try to lead is where we draw people into the presence, draw people out of the water into his presence and to know that they're loved for who they are. No, nothing else they do. Wow. So, I mean, an incredible turnaround from, you know, basically push it down, present strength to suddenly embracing vulnerability and inviting God into the yeah. deepest areas of brokenness. And like, what difference has that made in your life, that, that level of spiritual turnaround, encountering Jesus and allowing him into every part of your life? Everything. Uh, I went back to the police. So this, uh, I went back after six months, back to lead again. I led very differently. So I think I used to lead out of fear before and with an expectation I needed to be there. Someone used to give this great example to me, which was uh, echoed again on my course recently, where uh, life's like a bucket of water and you put your hand in and you make a big splash and you think you're a big deal. <laughs> but when you're dead or you leave or leave the police, you take your hand out and as if you never put your hand in the bucket of water. So get perspective of who God is yeah. and get perspective of who I am yeah. and just press into him. So that was, a, that was I made it. One of the lessons that I learned as well is I, I was working well, quite late and as a detective inspector, this isn't a waste of time. You don't get paid overtime. So I was actually booking a holiday whilst I was sitting in the office and everyone was there till eight or nine o'clock at night. I said, oh, I've done it and I left. Yeah. I thought, oh, I've left my phone on the... On the, um, uh, on the top. So I went back in and everyone's leaving. And I'm going, what is going on here? I said, I've missed something on the radio. And my, yeah. my best friend from school was one of my DSs. Yeah. And I said, Craig, what's happened? And he said, Bursty, we thought you all left. We were waiting for you to go home. And so I realised the culture I'd created. Wow. And I sat down with the whole team and said, look, being here long, for a long time doesn't mean you're working smart. Yeah. He said, I'm far, I had to learn to love my team in a different way. Yeah. And I set such a high bar. Yeah. Everyone thought they had to wait. And, yeah. like, and so those are the sort of things that changed. With, um, we obviously then discerned that we were going to uh, possibly leave the police. So we had a few words. And then our vicar did uh, training on Ignatius of Leola, yeah. uh, the Jesuits, the founder of the Jesuits, and said, if you're really, really interested in what you're going to do for the rest of your life, you've got to do a 30-day retreat. Because wow, me and Liz are people like we are. We're like, we're all in. <laughs> we're going to do that so we took 30 days took our kids out of school went and lived on a in a, in a, in a house and had a Jesuit priest come in every day and uh, just speak spiritual disciplines into us wow uh, and from that came the calling to the church I went back in and sat down with Chris who was the vicar and I said look I think we're being called to be uh, church leaders and I'm a bit embarrassed because you know my whole story yeah. and he went he showed me his diary and the day after he visited us he'd written down this bloke will be a vicar. Wow. And that was when I was broken. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. I have to hold on to that when I lead a church now. Well, it's not so often. Yeah, 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 yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Let, let's land with this then because there will be many in the room that maybe don't have the intensity of that story, although some in the room might. But we all have areas of brokenness and areas where we need further healing. We need to encounter God. And then there'll be those in the room that are spiritually, you know, searching, being invited by May, maybe don't believe in God, but curious enough to be in the room. What would you say to someone outside the church who's curious, maybe about the Alpha Course or just exploring faith? And what would you say to those that maybe have a faith in Jesus, but there's an area in their life where like, I need to encounter more healing? What would your encouragement be? Yeah, I just, um, it's about Jesus. It's for me, it's, I, I had an impression of Jesus 
in the past, which was like some weak person. But when I got to know the real Jesus, that Philip Yancey book, it's like, it's like I now know this is a, the most radical person and the most divine person. So it's pressing into, into Jesus who he is. It's staring at the cross. Mm. So I had an uh, image of during this time of, you know, I'd, I'm quite happy to be the hero in the story. And that sometimes, so the heroes of this story is Jesus and Liz. Yeah. Uh, and so I had an image of, I'll go, I'll go to the cross for you. Yeah. And then he gave me an image of my daughter on the cross. And I was like, no, 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 I'll do anything, anything yeah. for grace. And he said, that's what I've done for you. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. And so it's that for healing. It's about coming back again and again. I'm, I, he's taking onion layers of me all the time. Yeah. Stuff that suddenly crops up. So my story is all my boxes opened at one time. He's still gently taking me through that journey now. Even as I lead a church, yeah. he's reminding me of different stuff. And he says, come into my presence and I'll do the stuff. So I can give all the advice of the world as a vicar. Yeah. Nothing matters unless you come into the presence of Jesus wow. and you're transformed. Wow. And that fast tracks everything.